This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Before a service this morning, uh, Janice came and asked if she could put in a small table on the chancel. Uh, and I don't know if any of you are familiar with this small tradition, but it has a little glass vase of Rayla roses and is a place setting. And it, on Veterans Day, uh, for some folks, it's a reminder that we're not all home with our families today. And um, I, I thought that was a good thing to remember. Uh, as we struggle to talk about Veterans Day uh, and how difficult it is uh, to be called honorably to be a soldier and discover that soldiery is as broken as anything else in the world. Uh, have anybody seen the commercials that they run to join the Army or the Navy or the Marines? And doesn't it look like, you know, you get to be a superhero and save small children from terrible fires? And the truth is harder. The truth is a lot harder. And sometimes things happen because we're human that shame us, shame our efforts. And we contend with the bigger question as well of why are we at war? Why are we hurting each other? Why are humans so prone to be violent and divide and harm? And that spills over into everyday life with yet more shootings and the worry for those we love who serve who are more likely to be taken by suicide than in battle and what that means for us as well. And I've known soldiers and know soldiers and I know the honor that they seek. And I also know the pain um, of being involved in conflicts that are not what they would necessarily do themselves, left to their own desires. And so we hold that tension, right? We lift up our soldiers with such honor and care because we know what they carry is hard, bigger than what I carry. And we miss them when they're not with us. And yet we know that honor sometimes does mean taking the place of the protector, that our uh, first responders really do go into burning buildings and really do pull children out of those. And that that's a kind of courage and a kind of call to honor that we want to honor too. And so holding all those tensions, in a lot of ways, we get back to that simple thing that all of this rests in which is that we turn that to God. The bigger, the more complicated, the stickier it is, we just turn it to God. We say, God, you carry this, I cannot. God, light my path that I might know where my next step goes. And if my next, next step goes awry, pull me back. Let me make amends. Let me conduct myself in worth before you. And when I am missing in my service, let my family remember me with care and joy. I want to read a small segment 
of a psalm. Psalm number, this is one of the long ones, 119. Your word is a lamp for my steps. It lights the path before me. It takes an oath. I have taken an oath and confirmed it. I pledge to do what you say is right and just. I have suffered terribly, O eternal one. Give me the life you promised. Please accept the, the words I offer willingly, O eternal one, and instruct me in the ways of your justice. My soul is continually in danger. I do not forget your teachings. The wicked have laid a trap for me. I have not drifted away from your instructions. Your decrees are forever mine. They bring joy to my life. I have committed myself to do what you require forever and ever to the very end. Let us pray. Amazing and wonderful God, safeguard our men and women in uniform. Safeguard them that they may see the light ahead of them in their path and not stray from it. Lift them up when they falter. Protect their lives and bring them back safe and whole. Protect those who have saved from the memories of their time of service, from their fears, from their estrangements. Let them rebuild and heal to create the love and kindness that we all so desperately need. Amen. Let us say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The second scripture comes to us from Isaiah chapter 44 verses one through five. But now hear this, Jacob my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen, the Lord your maker who formed you in the womb and will help you says, don't fear my servant Jacob, Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. I will pour out water upon thirsty ground and streams upon dry land. I will pour out my spirit upon your descendants and my blessing upon your offspring. They will spring up from among the reeds like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will be named after Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Isaiah speaks of the ancestor Jacob, who becomes named Israel after wrestling with God at the side of the river. 
and takes the name of an entire people. This story that we're exploring this month is the story of the well in Sechem, uh, and uh, a place that is, at the time of the writing, called Samaria, a place that was distinct from the rest of Judea at that time, although it had at times been part of the wider uh, Israelite community and nation. It became a, a sort of a isolated place itself, and there was a vying, a competition between the Samaritans and the Judeans for who was right about which holy mountain was really the right one. And the Samarians, they worshipped Mount Gerizim, and they said that was the mountain. And when the kingdom of David and Solomon split in half, and we had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom brought its capital into Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom settled in Samaria. And that rivalry didn't go away. In fact, it deepened. And worse, during the time of the um, uh, Assyrian uh, war, when Assyria, where in Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom and, uh, and the emperor and his governor moved into Samaria, he brought in subjects of his from all over the Levant, people who were not Judean, people who were not ethnically what we would say and identify as Jewish today but instead brought in Arabs and North Africans and others. And of course, people fell in love and got married. But anybody ever, we, I think most of us are familiar with Harry Potter's stories. There's a really, really mean word in that story. It's the word mudblood. And in a way, that was how those in Judea understood and dealt with those in Samaria, that their blood had been muddied by these strangers, not made better for the fact that Herod had brought in Thracians and Galatians and, gasp, Germans into Samaria also. What do you do with conflicts like that? What do you do with the divisions that set tribes apart? This story, though, <clears throat> for all the big pieces that it pulls together, one of the things that it does is it uses the trope of humor. It comes right after the story of Nicodemus. And in the story of Nicodemus, what happens is Jesus encounters this Sadducee, and the Sadducees were proud high priests who had the honor of the entire nation and worshipped at the feet of Herod and Rome for money. And they were supposed to rule the temple, but instead they sort of soaked up much of what was available. But they walked through the streets, looking out and around, and others had to look down. Could not address them without being addressed first, and most people were beneath their notice. Now the uh, community of John was a ragtag group from all over the place. They wouldn't have much use for Sadducees. <laughs> in fact, probably been pretty persecuted and experienced that persecution. So in this story, we get Nicodemus, not as the proud Pharisee, well, in part, 
but as the buffoon who does not understand Jesus' basic teaching concepts. And this gives the John group this wonderful sense of unity, even superiority, as they chuckle like crazy when Nicodemus says, what, you have to be born again? You mean like go back into your mother's womb as an adult and be born again? That can't at all be what you're talking about. And he just sort of, how are these things even possible? And of course, everybody would be giggling. Oh, that's so funny. He doesn't know. He may be so big and fancy, but he has no idea what Jesus is talking about. Right after the Nicodemus story comes the Samaritan story. And here she comes with her jar to get the water at 12 noon. And as um, we were reading this scripture this morning, I realized, and I hadn't thought about this before, that when she says, hey, you mean I never have to come, if I drink from your water, I never have to drink again when Marjorie read that? I realized what a burden that was for her. We know that she was not well-liked in her village because she's coming to get water at noon at a time when the other women would not be there. She's come alone, which um, it, she's a Samaritan, so already, you know, she's not very clean. But this is even worse. This is bad even for a Samaritan. And I've always sort of thought about her as maybe being kind of proud Anyway, like, hey, forget you guys. You're going to be jerks to me. I'm just going to go at noon and get water. But you know what? It must have been hard to have to come to that well to drink, to be thirsty every day, and face the exiled walk. What is that, the walk of shame? To the well at noon in the heat. And how amazing to be offered a message that would allow you not to have to do that ever again. Somehow you could be reconciled in your heart or with your people in a way that your shame is healed. But the story in the beginning is just funny. Here she is, she comes to the, she comes to the well and there's Jesus and then they, well she freaks out a little bit, Jesus doesn't seem to freak out and he asks for water. Okay, whoa, okay, that's weird, that's all right, and you're a Judean, right? So you're not supposed to talk to me because I'm a woman, you're not supposed to be here. I know you're probably on your way to Galilee, nice straight shot, good well and all that, but you know, we're not supposed to talk to each other. And you're certainly not supposed to ask anything of me. But he asked for water. And then she's trying to figure out how that's gonna work, and he says, well, you know, if you knew what kind of water I could give you, you'd ask water from me. What? Wait, who's got the water? Who's asking for the water? Where's the water coming from again? And it's a nice deep well, it's Jacob's well. And she looks at him, she goes, you don't even have a bucket. It's like funny. What the heck? What, what are you even talking about? And how are you gonna get, I, I could see how might I give you water if I were allowed, which I'm not, and we're not supposed to be talking, and you're supposed to step away from me right now. Thank you very much, but, I'm supposed to ask you for water now, which you're going to give me without the bucket that you're going to need to get into the well? Really? And then she says something cool. She talks about the well as Jacob's well. And it's this wonderful reminder that they're family. 
that they're actually not so separate as all the weight of all the fighting over where the temple goes would suggest. Both of them claim Jacob as their ancestor. Both of them claim Abraham as their ancestor, and the well shows up on both sides of that stories. The well is there. And even more amazing, the well, there's a story, a Midrash story, where when Jacob was on the land of Sichem, the well, instead of being deep, and it's not, living water is water that is running, right? You can imagine the difference between a pool of water and how healthy that is, and living water, water that is running freely. When Jacob was on the land, the water bubbled up from deep under the well, pushed up against the boundaries of the sides of the well and overflowed. And the whole time that he lived there, the water overflowed the well, like a great and flowing stream. Jesus doesn't need a bucket. He knows that story. Isn't that amazing? And in the sharing of that story, they come to understand there's the power of ancestry here that transcends the arguments that have so lately been so painful. So when it comes to living water and waters of life, one of the things that I've been thinking of, because uh, the, the water is a life element of this series, comes out of my time uh, learning about and participating in the Standing Rock protest and the cry Miniwachoni and the gift that the uh, Lakota gave us to reflect more deeply on how important it is to name the ancestry of a place, to claim where we started from, and to assert how powerful and important it is to keep life flowing. We need water, it's just both at the simplicity of it. And I reflected on that, and I reflected on that. And when I came here, I wondered, wh wh whose, whose feet am I standing on? Who lived here? What is the ancestry of this place? When I was um, working on, uh, I have a great interest in uh, ancient uh, British uh, history, because I'm British, right? So that's my ancestry. And um, when I was working to reclaim my faith and understand what loving God meant for me, where God was in my life, I tried to trace back, like, who were these Britons? These ancient Britons, who were they? And it turns out, well, they're not even there anymore. They were chased off by the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes and the Danes. So I'm probably Danish. Maybe I'm Norse. My son has a little Neanderthal in his DNA. Sure, it comes from his dad, but you never know. <laughs> right? And, and I felt this sense of displacement, even though I might. Right? I'm supposed to feel pretty comfortable here, right? But I felt this sense of loss, 
And I started to try to learn more. And I learned about the ancient early Wessex saints, St. Leoba, St. Winifred, who was in Wales, St. Letta, and how they traveled with uh, St. Boniface. But you don't hear about them. They got written out. But these were abbesses, queens, princesses, apostles. These women were mighty, and they came out of that indigenous place. Well, it was once real for them. And it got overwritten by Rome and Christianity and invasions. And we don't even know what their view of heaven was. We get little snippets. We find burial marks, but we don't know why the folks were, little children were buried at the edges of the homes. Why? I want to know. Those are my people. And I mourned the loss of not getting to know that. And it made me sensitive to the fact that everywhere we go, somebody was standing there. Well, who was that? So I tried to figure it out, and what I came across was that here, underneath our feet, we used to have the homeland of the Shasta Indians, and, the, and I'm probably going to mispronounce that, the Takela, Takelma, did I, did I say that right? And I was glad to know that. And um, I came to an article in the Tribune that said that the, the village that they think was here was named Where the Crow Lights. I'm not going to try to pronounce that one. I know you, you're just supposed to say it and own it. That's what I teach. But sometimes I'm chicken to do that myself. And then 1853, the Rogue War broke out. But I remember the family stories about that. In our family, we came across, well, my husband's family, I married in. They came across on the Oregon Trail. There were fighters in the Rogue River War. There's pride in our family heritage that they fought the Rogue River Indians. And the more I learn about the fight, the more I pray about what, those, what that meant. That happened in 1853. And by 1855, Native peoples were gathered up into coastal reservations. But this is still where they stood. This is still a land that they breathed into their bones. And in Samaria, it was a land that belonged to the Samaritan woman and the Judeans, to Nicodemus, to all of them alike. And even though the stories start with... Um, jostling, joking, making fun. What a buffoon. They end with this gener generous, radical inclusivity. In the Nicodemus story, Jesus says, everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. Nicodemus, guess what? You're a jerk, but you get in if you just turn and see and live. For the Samaritan woman, he tells her, you will never be thirsty again. Here's a woman who was probably pretty thirsty, not just because she had to come get water at noon, but it sounded like things weren't going so well for her at home. How amazing is that? And this call to this shared ancestry, that somehow we can find a way to love and live together. So I went yesterday on a field trip 
and I went up to Crater Lake. I was in search of living water. And it's snowy up there, and I didn't know the right websites to look at, so we didn't get that far. We got all the way up to the visitor center, and it was hip deep snow. And my husband, uh, he brought boots that were torn. What a dork. <laughs> and so we couldn't go very far because his foot got wet and cold. But we went a ways, as ways as far as I could, and we took some pictures. And he's adorable in the pictures. If you have Instagram, look me up. And I brought home some snow. I couldn't get to the lake. Rain check. But the snow melt, that snow melt feeds the three rivers of Southern Oregon. Just like the rivers of creation, the four rivers that come from Eden, from Crater Lake National Park, from the snow melt and from the rain, we feed the lake, we feed the rogue, we feed the Umpqua, and we feed the Klamath. That has happened for centuries, for millennia. Well, when it was Mount Mazama, anyway, and the water ran off. So I brought some home to be our living water, a reminder of what unites us, our well of Jacob, that we can honor and love each other. We can lament what is lost, and we can choose life. I'm going to add some of my beautiful snow melts to our fountain. I can't add it all or it will overflow. And Jacob's not living here, so we don't have to overflow it all the time. But in the spirit of the waters of creation and the words of uh, Eden that we read last week of the rivers, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates, I've written a prayer for us. Waters flow from heaven to water the Eden that is Oregon. From the scars of Mount Mazama, God's glory is revealed in the mighty walls of the caldera. From rain and the melt of snow, the four headwaters of southern Oregon tumble. The name of the first river is the Klamath. It flows around and east of the Cascades, filling Klamath Lake, rushing through the tribal homelands of the Klamath, the Yurok, and the Yasuskin, nations. The na name of the second river is the Umpqua, touching countless creeks and streams and lower rivers on its way to the sea. The third name, the name of the third river is the Wild Rogue, rushing through the lands of the Shasta and the Tekelmam people and filled with the sustaining runs of salmon, steelhead and trout. And the name of the fourth great body of water, reflecting the pure, deep, of the waters of heaven itself is Crater Lake. We drink this water. It flows and irrigates the foods we eat. God is good. If you drink of this water, you will never be thirsty again. Praise be to God. Let us just take a moment for reflection. <laughs> 